We left off in our last time together questioning how much the elder brother might represent us. Well, we're not going to return to that subject now because we need to take a closer look at what's going on in the younger brother. Because it says in verse 13 that not many days after he made his request to the father for his scandalous desire to take his part of the property and go off with it. It says in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with loose living. Every one of these phrases is packed with meaning that are that, that, that's not clear to the average reader. First of all, many days later, why many days later? Well, because he had to have time to turn all of his father's property into cash. That's what the word gathered here means. The word literally in the Greek means to turn something into cash. He gathered it and sold it cheaply so that he had to leave town in a hurry because he was going to be scorned by the entire community. That's what was coming down on his head, so he had to rush to sell it all and get out of town. Never mind that the town participates in his dishonorable activity by gladly purchasing his wares cheaply. They'll participate and despise him in the process. As he leaves, the only thing that he will have following him out of town is his father's broken-hearted love. Now, to the hearers of Jesus' teaching here, there's a concept that we would not know about if we didn't have it taught to us, and that is the, the principle of, of kezezah. If a Jewish son lost the money from a dividing of his father's estate by going off among the Gentiles and misappropriating it, misspending it, and losing it, the community would, would go through what is called the ceremony of Kezeza, the cutting off. The community would break a large pot at his feet upon his return and cry out, So-and-so is cut off from his people total shunning. So he took his journey, and th this phrase here, took his journey, is kind of a colorful phrase that means he traveled away from his own people. The idea is not just that he's going on a journey, but that he's purposely having to skedaddle to escape their disdain and their abuse toward him. doesn't matter where the far country is that he went to, it says he went to a far country, the far country just refers to the fact that they were Gentiles. They ate swine. They sacrificed swine. So there's no doubt about what's waiting for him if he mishandles this. When it says that he squandered all his property, the word actually is better translated scattered. It's it's the word used for scattering troops or scattering seed, scattering a flock. Or it's used in reference to wasting resources. So he squandered or scattered everything. Now, there's no record of the prodigal being immoral except in the slanderous accusation of his older brother. Loose living here refers to being a spendthrift, not a whoremonger. 
Aristotle, for instance, says uh, a prodigal is a person who has the single evil quality of wasting his resources. And he tries to support himself with the very thing that he uses to destroy his, uh, his resources. Then comes the famine. He's running out of options. He still won't go home, though. Now, why? When the famine struck, why didn't he go home? Well, everybody understood why he didn't go home. After wasting his part of his property, he, if he returned home to live, uh, he would have to live off his father and off of his brother. His brother's scorn makes that unbearable to consider. His estrangement from his brother keeps him from fellowship with his father. And so even in the face of famine, and here again, I won't take the time to describe the horror of a, of a famine throughout history, but especially in, in the Middle East at the time Jesus is saying these things, uh, a famine is a horrible thing to, to contemplate. You'd think, surely, this cataclysm would drive him home. You know, sometimes we assume that cataclysms will drive people back to where they belong. But that's not always true, is it? Sometimes there are fears and bondages in people that are more binding than any cataclysm can uh, overcome. And one of the things that he doesn't want to face is having to live off of his brother, who is such a source of shame and disdain toward him. But the other thing is, we've already mentioned, Kezeza. The Middle Eastern villages love to torture those who they deem to be failures. Uh, an example is Mark chapter 10, verse 46, 47, 48. Blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, literally means son of filth. And the word filth is obviously a word I'm using to avoid using the, the more vulgar word. It's a very disdainful name. Obviously, his parents did not name him Bartimaeus. That, now, this kind of recreational abuse of people for uh, entertainment, which is very evil, which was common in uh, these villages, still is in, in many parts of, of the Middle East. You see it again in Second Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, that weird story where Elisha, is coming through and it says it says one I think the King James Version translates it little children. It's not a good translation. It, they weren't little children, they were young adults. But anyway, uh they come out and say, Go up, old bald head. They're making fun of his bald head, but what they're really making fun of is that he was supposed to be a prophet and they were disdaining that whole idea that he was the man of God and that Elijah had gone up, and they're saying, if you're a man of God, you go up to old Ballhead. I mean, it sounds innocuous, but from people who have lived in these cultures, uh, like Dr. Ken Bailey, who lived among these Middle Eastern villages for several decades, he says, you can't imagine the, the, the cruelty and the abuse of uh, these, these people and the way they treat people. And uh, so he said it's not quite so surprising that Elisha would call bears out of the woods to eat them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's bad enough that these young people are doing this, but in Kezaza, it's not just the young people. 
Everybody participates. It, it's an all-out open war on uh, the poor soul that they're trying to mistreat. But let's look at the psychology of the lost son. What's going on inside his head? Famine, total loss of any possibility of self-support. And so it says he joined himself to a local pig farmer. Kaluo, the word joined with. It's the same word that is translated, uh, a man shall leave his wife, uh, father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's the word for glue. So he he joins himself to this farmer. And it's kind of a typical Middle Eastern practice of uh, just willfully, purposely making yourself available to somebody out of desperation and, and out of a, kind of a false sense of compassion. The person to whom he's joined himself allows him to, but yet gives him a job that is so gross that he hopes it'll drive him away. And that's what's happened here. He starts feeding the pigs. And uh, uh, pigs in that day, you know, were the garbage collectors and the, the, the road refuse cleaners. They ate everything from garbage to manure. And uh, you can imagine how a Jew would feel being around them, much less having to feed them, much less uh, having to step in their muck and mire. But he's so afraid of coming home and facing not only the village, but his brother, that he would rather do that than go home. And and he it says here, that he greatly desired. The word is used here that is normally used to describe a compulsive lust. He greatly desired to eat what the pigs ate, but he knew he couldn't digest it. But he wished he was a pig. That's the idea. Because no one would give to him. And yet, in this condition, he still won't go home. Then it says, he finally came to himself. Now, what does it mean that he came to himself? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he repented. Now, we'd like to think that's what it means. But there's no repentance here. It just means he woke up. He finally one day realized, you know, this is kind of stupid. In fact, the Arabic translation of this story for 1,800 years has never translated it any other way than he got smart. Uh, he only woke up to the fact that he's hungry and he doesn't have to be because the servants at his father's house are eating and he's not. That's all it means. Uh, there's no mention of his arrogance, being sorry for it. No mention of his rebellion, being sorry for it. No mention of greed being sorry for it. Much more, there's no mention of what he did to his father's heart. Just that he's hungry and he woke up to the fact that there's a place he could go and eat. Now, in order to avoid Kizaza, he plans to become as a skilled craftsman. So he starts formulating this idea in his head. Make me as one of your hired servants. An apprentice. Now, most of us have heard this story and we thought, well, see, he's showing humility. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son, so just make me as a hired servant and I'll just do that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'll, I'll cut a deal. 
Uh, I won't live in the house. That way I can avoid my brother, by the way. Just make me as one of your skilled apprentices, trained in craftsmanship, who gets paid for his work, and that way I can work my way back and pay back what I uh, owe the family, and I won't have to be under the uh, duress of Kizaza, and I can build a new reputation for myself. And so uh, he knows he can't do this without his father's support. So he he practices this speech. The Greek says that he kept saying to himself over and over, here's what I'll say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of your house. Make me as a skilled craftsman. Sadly, the son does not understand the nature of his sin at all. He still thinks it's about lost money. It isn't. It's about the father's broken heart. It's not broken law, it's broken relationship. But he doesn't know that yet. Jesus puts Pharaoh's insincere words into the prodigal's mouth from Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, where Pharaoh says to Moses, I have sinned against God and you, Moses. So just as Pharaoh faked his repentance in order to get his own way, Jesus puts that same spirit of uh, misuse of language in the mouth of the prodigal. He's not shattered under the revelation of his true sin against his father's love, for he, if he had been, would never have tried to manipulate for a paid servant's position. He uses the Greek word for hired laborer, not slave. There's no humility in it. I will arise and go, he says, implying a self-resurrection motivated only by the need for food. So basically what he's saying is, I'm back. I'll be a blue-collar worker making my own way. I'll live in the workers' housing away from my mean brother. And that means I will have no intimate contact with my father either, but that won't matter because I'm a working man making my own way. My humility at this new beginning leading to my success at the end will impress my father. His entire approach is legal, not relational. As long as he refuses to see the depth of his true sin, he will believe a good moral work ethic is all that's needed. He even believes the Father is as shallow as he is, if he believes the Father would be impressed by that. Only an agonizing realization of his need for sheer grace can bring that grace. I'm hoping we're beginning to get inside the head and heart of this story so that it will get inside our heads and our hearts, too. It may be asking too much of us to try to transcend our own stilted, preconceived notions of this story because it's so familiar. Even as good as certain aspects of those concepts may be. And truly begin to taste and smell what is actually being portrayed here by Jesus. Are you beginning to realize how many concrete, unshakable cultural concepts are immediately awakened as Jesus describes this event, yet Jesus purposely shakes those unshakable concepts? You and I have to have it spelled out for us, but for the original audience, when Jesus says something as simple as, and the younger son said, Father, give me the portion. 
Before he can complete his sentence, every listener would have calculated in split seconds all of the ramifications that would immediately and irrevocably have been set in motion by such a request. They then would have experienced inside themselves an explosion of emotions which would be suitable responses to such an unlikely and shocking scenario. Before they would have had time to fulfill that process, the story would have moved on to another level, requiring another inner turmoil of processing, until by the time Jesus reveals the younger son's plan of returning in the hope of becoming a hired, skilled worker, it's likely that each hearer might be seeing himself preparing to participate in the village mob scene. They might see themselves as the self-righteous performer of the Kizaza. The son will brace himself as he returns to the village from whence he debased himself. He will approach the house of the father where he disgraced himself. His father will naturally stay aloof within the house, allowing time for the Kizaza ceremony to unfold. And he will remain out of sight while the taunting, cursing abuses begin to be poured on his deserving son. All along the hot, dusty road, the son has been reciting his planned statement. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am not worthy to be called your son. He hopes, though he knows it might be a long shot, that the, word, the words will quell the feeding frenzy of the villagers, and if he can possibly gain an audience with his father, he can add the appeal to allow him to work off his debt so his father in the village, by requesting this, might back away a little bit and give him some room to wiggle. Then they'll all be back in a position where uh, he can prove himself and raise himself up with his own bootstraps. This is all going on inside his head. Now don't don't underestimate the fact that he's afraid, that he knows that it might not go the way he thinks and it could get ugly. And he has no idea what the father's going to be like because he didn't know his father. See, he didn't know his father's heart at all. And he thinks that his father's as broken as he is. Because it says in Psalm 18 that to, to those who are crooked, God appears crooked. It's not that God is crooked or that God makes them see him as crooked. But because they're crooked, they choose to see God through their crooked lens. But something happens that nobody anticipated. The anticipated humiliation will not get to occur. Nor will the anticipated speech be allowed to be spoken. For before the unalterable cultural punishment can be levied, and before the unsatisfactory offer of self-resurrection can be offered, Jesus reveals an event so shocking so outside the boundaries of all social expectation that once again every hearer has to step back and reel inside over the first event. And then the meaning of the event. For the father does not stay in the house aloof. He doesn't even allow his son to enter the village unmet. In a culture in which elders do not even walk fast, the father, seeing his son afar off, which means he was always looking for him, tears out the door of his house, and Luke purposefully uses a carefully chosen word, dremon, to describe the father as he 
runs. And the word here is not just running, but it's the word used throughout the New Testament for the race. He's not just running. He is tearing. He is racing. He doesn't even walk briskly, briskly, which might imply a lack of self-control or dignity. No man over the age of 25 or so would even step lively. But this father runs, and he doesn't run as a jogger might. He races, for the word Luke uses is the word that always refers to a sprint of an athlete. And to do so, he would have had to have hold, held his robes or his outer garments up, revealing his bare legs. Now, that's something on the level in our culture, I guess, of racing down a busy highway only wearing a shower curtain, but everybody on the highway would know you. He seems to have on his mind not only his longing for his son, but his desperate desire to save his son from the cruelty of Gaza. Uh, So in this moment, the father is exerting himself at great cost to protect his son by taking onto himself the shame and abuse that belonged to his son. And in this moment, though no parable or story can ever grasp the fullness of what it meant for God to save us, in this story we see the father descending as the son into the incarnate vulnerability of humiliation and shame in order to bear for the lost one that punishment which should rightly have been the lost son's punishment. And in this we see a glimpse of what Paul meant when he states in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Please note that he does not say he was reconciling himself to the world For there was never anything but love and goodwill in the Father's heart for his creation. It was the creature that had rejected the Creator, the sons that had rejected their Father, not the other way around. Nor was the rejection mutual. So the Father comes in the Son to bring salvation and deliverance to that which was lost. And what was lost? Relationship. So what is needed is reconciliation. Notice, he's moved with compassion. This word compassion uh, is from a Greek root word that has to do with the intestines. A very common phrase in in parlance of the Middle East when speaking of having an emotionally painful encounter, you are cutting up my intestines. This is not the impassionate, unmoved mover of the Greek philosophers or of later Western Christians who took their theology more from Greece than from Jerusalem. This is the Messiah describing the Father in heaven whom he has come to exegete. And he uses a common oriental expression to describe the reason for the running. It is that the Father's insides were being cut to pieces by the thought of his Son. This kind of reconciliation is not born of corrected legal differences or even of satisfied justice, with all due respect to those aspects. It's hardly believable that these would be the utmost aspects on the mind and the heart of the Father in this story. He's moved with compassion. He's moved, all right. He's running. He's not just running, he's sprinting. His intestines are torn with emotion over the one he loves who was lost and is now at the door. 
then it says he kissed him. And the word here in Greek means one of two things. He kissed him tenderly or he kissed him repeatedly. And it depends on the context, how how it is interpreted. If you're talking about the kiss of a husband for a wife or the kiss of a parent for a child, you would interpret it as tenderly. But in this context, he kissed him repeatedly would make more sense. It's the strong, loving kisses of a father welcoming a son and seeking to heal and restore him. The witnesses, uh, the household has followed the racing father to the son, for the father will turn to them in order to give them directions on how to go prepare the house for the son's celebration. They're seeing everything. They're hearing everything. Now, Islam interprets this story to mean that there's no suffering Savior who makes a way for reconciliation, but there's great prolonged suffering on the part of the Father, and it is deepened now by the self-sacrificing demonstration of the Father's willingness to lose face in order to save his Son. It is in this moment that the Son realizes for the first time the depth of his Father's compassion, resulting in the revelation of the depth of his own sin against his Father's love. Calvary is clearly seen in this. No words he originally composed in order to manipulate are spoken. He he drops all of that. Now he says with true humility and humiliation and shame and a, and a proper broken heart, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Notice he drops the whole thing of make me as one of your hired servants. And times past when teaching this story, I've followed the example of my teachers who said that the father interrupts the rehearsed speech of the son in order to enforce upon him the father's welcome and grace. I no longer believe that is what happened. What happened is the son now sees firsthand what his sin was like and who he sinned against and what he was sinning against. And in this moment of clarity, he truly repents. And the meaning of repentance here is this. He allows himself to be found. Just like the lost sheep. Repentance here means dropping all pretense and collapsing in the arms of grace. Nothing more, nothing less. He can do nothing but let himself be found. Isn't it ironic that legalistic religion would seek to impose upon the Son here a requirement of repentance, which somehow becomes interpreted to mean he must do something. He must uh, show himself worthy of mercy before any mercy will be offered. It's the very opposite of what God is seeking uh, for his Son's heart to take hold of and for the hearts of the bystanders to take hold of. And that now includes me and you. We are now as responsible as the listeners of the original telling of this story to take hold of the revelation. That the repentance here that God requires is, is, is a repentance in this context. I'm not saying there's never a place for restitution or there's never a place for putting something right. But the point here is, in this context, there's nothing you can do. You can't sing and dance fast enough. You can't bring a sacrifice. You can't go get a job and make money and bring the money back. It would be an insult to the very 
heart and soul of the Father to think you could bring anything that would be worthy of, of his love. It would cheapen the relationship. Bring me the whole world. What would that do to put right the broken relationship? What I, what I want from you, the fruit of repentance I want from you is utter, total trust that collapses in my welcoming arms. That's repentance in this story. But see, legalistic religion, born by the spirit of darkness, wants to destroy that by making you do something. Anyway, the repentance the Father seeks is that we collapse under the weight of our hopeless condition, seeing clearly not only that we can do nothing to save ourselves, we cannot become a skilled worker and save up enough to pay back our debt, but more than that, to see the level of love we have rejected, not so that that love can be held over our heads to make us feel guilty forever. On the contrary, so we will fall into the arms of that love, knowing since we can never earn it, we can never lose it. And as a result of understanding such love, we live in a holy fear of ever dishonoring it ever again. Not a fear of being rejected, but a fear of hurting the source of that love, a fear of dishonoring it. So those who have known real love understand the fear of injuring love. It could be said, maybe, like this, I have a fear of Mary, or I have a fear of my children. If we interpret it to mean, I have a fear of ever dishonoring my, my love for them, or making them uh, feel injured in, in a way that would make my love seem ingenuine or dis disingenuous. Does that make sense? Then, then take that way higher than mere human relationship. That's what the fear of the Lord is. So you then can see that any time we give in to feelings that imply God is not good, or God does not love us, or God is angry at us all the time and is against us, we're sinning against love. And the moment we have all sorts of scripture verses pouring into our minds that seem to affirm our deepest fears of rejection, we can then begin to discern the real source of such scripture being quoted to us. Just because it's scripture doesn't mean it's coming from God. The devil quotes scripture. My goodness, he loves to fill any pulpit he can. And any time he can make God look like the devil and fill God's people with that kind of dread, which renders them weak and insecure and confused and angry, he's preached his favorite sermon. Do you see that the only message that, that is truly from the heart of God that calls us away from sin is a message that approaches us in appeal to relationship? When you read verses that seem to go straight to some dire warning of impending doom, such verses are usually taken from texts in which God's love and grace has been calling and calling, and there's not been only no heeding to it, but an arrogant rejection of it. So the dire warnings are the last attempts of mercy shouting out right before the impending fruit of sin manifests. But it's God's kindness that calls us to repentance. It's his love that constrains us. And the more we know of that love, the less power sin has over us. Haven't you ever wondered why some of the grossest sin seems to be manifested among the most legalistic Christian groups? The strength of sin is the imposing of law apart from any understanding of the parental love behind that law. law. The law is not unholy. 
The law is not the problem. But the spirit of legalism that denies the parental heart of the law, which is the real meaning of Torah, is, is what Paul's warning about. So the more don'ts you have pounded in on you, the more you will rebel against such empty legalism, and it causes you to break out in the opposite direction of what the legalistic requirement is. How many parents operate in fear over their children instead of love? Love casts out fear. How many Christian children have desperately tried to escape the chafing weight of such fearful religious rules? Sadly, they're run off into life-destroying behavior. But it's not God's word which drove them away as much as legalistic misinterpretation of that word. This is exactly why Jesus was rebuking the legalists of his day when he said to them in Luke eleven forty six, You experts in the law, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you won't lift a finger to help them. Now you parents who might be listening to this, please don't start loading yourself up with burdens you can't carry and beating yourself up. If you've been legalistic with your children, I've been legalistic with my children. I've gone to them and repented. Then I've tried to show fruit of repentance in my life toward them. I'm not doing, uh, I'm not doing penance. I'm living in love. I'm living in freedom. I'm living in joy. And that has uh, undone many broken places that my legalism was making worse. Can't you see that every time we give in to feelings of rejection and hurt and abandonment, every time we give in to accusations of the enemy against us, and believe that it is the devil's accusation is really God's opinion of us, that it is in that moment of self-rejection which we may even falsely believe to be humility. It's in that moment that we are siding with the devil against the truth. And in doing that, we sin against God's love. The way out of that is not to then beat yourself up over your, quote, sin, the only way to repent of that sin in such a case as this is to turn around and change your mind and go the opposite direction of that sin, which means you start believing you're loved, believing that you're cared for, believing that God is faithful and good, believing that he'll never leave you or forsake you. You will never work enough to pay back your debt. So you live no longer in perpetual insecurity, but you begin to live in the freedom that comes from being totally helpless. I was I was so broken and so perverted and so in bondage, so addicted to evil that I had no illusions about working my way back or becoming a skilled craftsman <laughs> so I could work hard and make my father proud or pay back my debt to the community. My debt to the community was beyond measure. I had so sinned against God and against people my great advantage was that I learned very early on that I was totally, absolutely, and utterly hopeless. I had only one hope. Jesus would have to come get me. <laughs> and he did. I'm often tempted, though, with the same temptation the younger son had. He, he has returned with nothing but filthy rags. Literally, filthy rags, that's all. It makes you think of Isaiah 64, 4. Our sins are like filthy rags. 
And in the face of such mercy and love, he's totally delivered of any self-deceiving notion that he can save himself or recommend himself. He's free from the fear of punishment, and he's free from the desire for reward. Neither of these are fitting for anyone who is loved with such a love as this love. His temptation, then, is to give in to false humility, to reject such grace, and refuse his position as a son, and therefore escape the demands that love makes on him. What demands? Oh, yes, love makes demands. He must learn to live in a sustained position of being the object of his father's love. Do you have any idea how hard it is to be the object of someone's love? (laughs) it's demanding. Not because it's legalistic, but because it's not legalistic. See, legalists will give me rules to keep. So as long as I keep the outer rules, I can deceive myself into thinking I'm real and right. But true love that makes no demands but that which love makes places on me an ever-increasing sense of urgency to grow in my capacity to love. See how love makes demands? See, love demands that I grow in love. So the younger son seems to have made the wise choice. He receives his father's every blessing and snuggles in under his arm. The feast, the robe, the ring, the shoes, all these symbolize the restoration of full status and authority. He may have to grow into them, but he will. There's no working his way back. He's either home because he is a beloved son or he is still lost with no hope in the world. Notice there's a progression now in the way the father restores the son. The slaves who wear no shoes must see to it that uh, he's wearing his shoes. He's not a slave. He's a son. The feast is public and all of the village will know he is restored to his father's house. The robe is the father's robe of the firstborn, establishing the son's headship in the house, and the ring makes him able to do business with anyone his father does business with. This is scandalous, insulting grace. An outward sign is given to help each strata of society reintegrate with the restored son. There's only one relationship which has no such object of restoration. It's the most difficult relationship to restore of them all. The restored son does not, cannot, any longer seek reward or fear punishment. He's simply and forever his father's son. And in such love, it is inevitable that he will grow into the kind of man his father is. For love can never leave us stagnant. But standing over in the shadows is one who lives totally in the strain of the two loveless forces fear, and selfish ambition. And we need to take a good look at him now. I want to take this verse by verse because in every verse there are issues that we need to understand. Uh, Verse 25 says, Now his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. What we have here is an elder son who is the overseer. He's not out in the fields working hard and sweating He's out there watching over the other workmen, and he hears the sound of music coming from the house and is drawn to it. 
Verse 26 says, he called one of the young boys and asked, what this? What did all this mean? Verse 27, the, the young boy said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him with peace. Now, do you remember in Luke 15 too, when we started this study, it makes it a point, Luke makes it a point under the direction of the Holy Spirit to lay the foundation of this entire study by saying that Jesus was in the company of two groups of people, self-righteous Pharisees and uh, the good people, quote-unquote, and then the, quote, sinners. And you remember, it says that the Pharisees were indignant and enraged at Jesus because he not only was welcoming and friendly and open-hearted toward the sinners, but he was actually eating with them. These are the people Jesus is telling this story to. There's no doubt in in the first place who the elder son represents. Nobody had to have that explained. The word elder there, presbyteros, is the same word used for <clears throat> eldership in the in the church this is not to indict any any true elder of course but it's talking about those who claim to be wise and those who claim to be righteous and uh in verse 28 it says he was very angry and he refused to go in now again we need to understand the dynamics that are taking place here this is not being done in secret Everybody can see he's come to the house. Everybody can see that he's angry. Everybody can see that he's not coming in, but he's staying in the shadows. What you need to understand is everybody would know that he's doing this openly and purposefully as an act of rebellious insult to his father who he's angry at. Because his proper place in the setting like this as the elder son would be to come in and serve he would actually be the one at the head table serving the food and making sure that the uh, festivities are going in the right direction while his father would be visiting with people. He would be, he would be the, the, the host. But by refusing to even come in, he is making a statement that is more public and more, de- more demeaning and more dishonoring to his father than the original uh, sin of the younger brother. I mean, what he's doing here is worse in many ways than what the younger brother did. He's saying, I have no intention of fulfilling my role. I have no intention of coming alongside you and, and uh, honoring you in this event. <clears throat> I'm making a very clear statement that everybody can see that uh, I'm pretty upset about you welcoming this boy back home. He was angry and refused to go in. What an insult. In front of the whole community now. I mean, uh, yeah, the younger son, it was clear to the whole community what the younger son had done, but this this is a, a, a fist in the father's face. Verse 28 says, His father came out and entreated him. Now, the word in Greek, kaleo, which is translated about seven different ways depending on the prefix, 
For instance, it says in verse 26, he called one of the young boys to ask him what all this partying was about. The word there is proskaleo. It means he called him to come and stand in front of him the way a servant would stand in front of a master. That's not the word used here when it says that the father, it says the father came out and it's parakaleo. He came out and entreated him lovingly, appealing to him in hope of reconciliation. That's the meaning of parakaleo. It means come alongside me. It means to try to walk up and put your arm around like paraclete, Holy Spirit, comforter. He, he comes alongside in the hope that the implication is, would you please look at this son from my point of view? Look, look at it from, from where I'm standing. It's exactly the word used in Second Corinthians 5.20 where Paul says, I beseech you in Christ's place, be reconciled to God. I'm standing in the place of Jesus himself and I'm putting my arm around you and I'm entreating you to come and be reconciled. That's the whole spirit of this. Now, the shock that would be on everybody's face. You think you think they were shocked before <clears throat> when the father did not uh, uh, disown the younger son or when the father did not uh, do something retributive uh, toward the younger son. You think they were shocked at that. They fully expect the normal behavior, that the normal behavior in their culture would have been for the father to command that the son be taken uh by force to some room and be locked up until he could deal with him later, which would probably include some kind of uh, intense corporal punishment. But once again, Jesus is purposely doing something so completely opposite to the normal expectation of the culture that it's scandalous. This is why I call it scandalous grace. Grace that insults our expectations and our sensibilities and our self-righteousness. And the Father, lovingly, gently, but still in earshot, and people around can, can hear what's going on. But he disre- disregards his Father. Now, notice something about the Son here. In all three sections of this story, the shepherd, the woman, and the Father all make great personal efforts and sacrifices in order to retrieve what was lost But the brother not only refuses to do that, but is angrily insistent on the very opposite. I mean, listen to his true heart. He says, he answered his father, verse 26, Look, all these years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid so I could party with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. Now, the younger son was a rebel, and he knew it. The elder son is a rebel, and he doesn't know it. For he's lived so long in self-righteous religious legalism that he doesn't even see now that out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth is showing what he's really like. For in his spewing out of his complaint, he leaves out something that is just a part of normal vernacular, the respectful preface, O Father, which would be normal to say even in private, but in public it would have been absolutely scandalous that he omitted it, but he omitted it. So we see seven basic principles here, or seven points. 
His relationship with the Father is one of servitude motivated by greed. What can I get out of it? Number two, he says he never disobeyed, and yet look at how he's behaving at this very moment. Number three, he says, you never even gave me a kid. The idea here is much less a fatted calf. When everything he has is at his fingertips. It's his own legalistic self-righteousness that wouldn't allow him to have a party or enjoy life. Because you can see the whole demeanor of, of this older son is one of uh, criticism, legalism, and disdain for living. And uh, number four, he says, yeah, I never got to have a party with my friends. I guess that means he wasn't interested in having any kind of relationship with his own father or his own brother. He had his own special group of friends to uh, interact with. And then, I guess maybe the most insulting one of all, he says, now this son of yours, this son of yours? who's been out with harlots. He has no proof that he's been with harlots. It's just a slander. You've killed for him the fatted calf. No, the little boy who he approached when he came to the house told him what the fatted calf was killed for. It was for the celebration of shalom. You see, the reason the brother is angry is because the father has already made peace with his younger son. If if the little boy had said, well, your son, your, your brother has come back and your father has received him safe and sound, and, and some translations mistranslate it that way, um, then he would have run in and said, okay, well, he's back safe and sound, so now we can have a family trial and we can put him on trial and we can uh, execute him. But the little boy uses a word that's translated from the Greek. The Greek word is where we get our word hygiene, and it means to be whole and to be clean and to be uh, healthy. But it's always translated uh, from Greek into Hebrew. It's always shalom. And where there is shalom, there is no room for uh, accusation or, or legalism or rejection or bringing up the past or any of that. It's forgiven. It's as we would say, it's under the blood of the Lamb. But this older brother wants his definition of justice, and he is angry that there's already been shalom given. Now, Surely by now the listeners are expecting the long-awaited outburst of the father's anger. They've been anticipating it all this time, and yet look what the father says to the son. He says, My son, now, all through this story, the word has been the, the normal generic word for son. Huyas uh, in Greek is just the basic word for father-son relationship. But here, in the face of such abuse and wickedness, the father turns to the son and he says, Technon, which is my dear son. It's, it's a most affectionate term a father could use with a son. And he uses it here when he's being abused the most. My dear son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to have a great party and to be joyous, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In all these damning behaviors of the older brother, the 
the accusation of favoritism, uh, the uh, disowning of his own brother, the twisting of the facts to make his case look more solid. The father doesn't even try to correct any of that. There's only one thing he does correct in his statement to the son. He says, this is your brother. So can we all agree now we have been off the mark referring to this story as the, quote, prodigal son? For in calling it that, we managed to chop the story in half. We can then focus on the rotten younger son while totally avoiding the part of the story which may most directly address our own sin. Because it does seem to be more and more, for those of us anyway, that have been part of, quote, the church, that maybe we're the older brother. Maybe that's why the, the world is so angry at the church. How much do we ever allow the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts with reference to self-righteousness? How much does our unchallenged self-righteousness keep us from loving and serving our wayward brother or sister? But most of all, how much does our overemphasis on the younger brother's sin, or even the elder brother's sin, cause us to completely miss the real point of this story? Because the real point of this story is that Jesus who John chapter 1 says is the living word who has come down to us to exegete for us the Father. The living word of God, the living Torah himself, is teaching us what the Father God is really like. Have we gotten that yet? Because, you know, I think the reason that we might be elder brother-ish is because we don't know the father. That's why the elder brother didn't behave any better than he did. He didn't know his father. Oh, he was in his house, worked for him. Some of the meanest people I've ever known in my life are in church working hard for God, but they don't, they don't know him. I mean, I'm not trying to make a comment on whether they're saved or not or going to heaven or not. I mean, maybe they are, but my gosh... They won't enjoy it when they get there. What about you? I mean, do you really know the heart of God the Father? Or is he just, uh, um, at best, an enigma and at worst, an ogre? Why don't you start fighting for that? Why don't you, don't, don't ignore it anymore if that's you. If you have a tendency, for instance, sometimes to turn to Jesus because you trust him. I mean, I understand that. I've, I've been there. And, I, and I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I mean, John says, he who has the Son has the Father. Jesus told Philip, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Jesus is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the, the Prince of Peace. I, that's, I'm not talking about theology or Trinitarianism. I'm talking about relationship. And Jesus came to bring me home to Abba. And because of so many of the father wounds in my life, I could not trust the word, Abba. And the Lord had to do a lot of work in me to bring me there. But the reason it's so important is because I think if you don't trust Abba, it'll show up in the way you treat people. It'll show up in the way you treat even people you love. It'll sure show up in the way you treat people that you don't like or people that have been sleeping with pigs.
And that brings me to a, a point that I probably don't have time to adequately address, but I'm going to try to in the few minutes we've got left. And that is, when I talk about scandalous, insulting grace, I hope you get the meaning of that. It's, it's, it's not that grace is truly scandalous or insulting. The very nature of grace is that it comes to the ungraceful, to the hopeless, to the broken. But we've become so elder brother-like in our, in our view of Orthodox Christianity that we don't realize sometimes how, how ungracious we can be. And I'll tell you, I think one of the hardest things that Mary and I face is the number of cases we deal with that are, they're scandalous. That people are in terrible, terrible secret sin. And I mean, it's stuff that can make a sailor blush sometimes, so to speak. But on the one hand, I don't ever think it's a good thing to get so familiar with sin that nothing can make you blush. I think that's dangerous. You know, Jeremiah talks about that. They don't even blush anymore. But on the other hand, it's you're never going to help people if you're just kind of prudish and and you don't realize just how sinful sin is. And so you uh, you end up without meaning to, just wanting to, as I've said repeatedly, build a little white picket fence to protect you from the outside world. And the white picket fence is legislation. And we're just gonna we're gonna elect the right people, and we're gonna put the right laws in place, and we're gonna straighten this country out. I want to read to you just quickly what it was like to live in a culture that had godly, quote-unquote, legislation. This is what it was like to live under John Calvin in Geneva. These things were forbidden. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, relics, church bells, organs, altar candles, indecent or irreligious songs, staging or attending theatrical plays, wearing rouge, jewelry, lace, or immodest dress, speaking disrespectfully to your betters, extravagant entertainment, swearing, gambling, playing cards, hunting, drunkenness, naming children after anyone other than Old Testament figures, reading immoral or irreligious books. For instance, under Calvinism in Geneva, a father who christened his son Claude a name not found in the Old Testament, spent four days in jail, as did a woman whose hairdo was too high on her head. It was considered immoral. Uh, The uh, local authorities beheaded a child who had struck his parents. I think the child was six years old. They drowned any single women found pregnant, and on two separate occasions, members of Calvin's family were executed for being found in bed with people not married to them. This doesn't include, of course, the burning of servitas and other little items we won't go into. No, I want to tell you something, folks. You don't want to live in a Republican-controlled church environment in America. Just like you don't want to live in a a Democrat-controlled environment. 
The reason this country has survived and thrived is because it was founded with the recognition that the hearts of men are crooked and we have three separate uh, branches of government because none of the three can be trusted on their own. They have to have at least two other opposing forces watching over the shoulder of the other one because men's hearts are crooked. It's only grace that delivers and heals. And it's only the mercy of God and the grace of God flowing through us towards people who need mercy that brings the kingdom of God. But I've heard, I've actually heard statements made in, in my presence by certain people on the far right in America making statements like, I'm, I'm sick and tired of turning the other cheek. That's all we do is turn the other cheek. I'm ready to smash some faces. I'll tell you, and this, these are Christians who say things like this. And I'll tell you, in moments of, of extreme frustration with some of the foolishness that gets purported as, as uh, true liberalism, I've, I've gotten pretty angry uh, at that before, but what good did it do for me to get angry? If something's stupid, getting angry at it doesn't make it less stupid. It just makes me more stupid with them. It's the love of God, the wisdom of God, and the action of godly, loving people moving into the brokenness and the, the corruption and being salt where it's rotten and light where it's dark, getting your hands dirty, getting your face wet with tears, getting the smell of pig dung on you. That's where the kingdom of God manifests itself. And uh, I appeal to you in the closing moments that we've got here together that you ask the Holy Spirit to purge you from anything that smacks of elder brotherism. Because, to be honest, the audience that God has given me a platform to communicate with, uh, I don't think our, our grave danger is to be the prodigal son. I don't think there's many of us that have that t- temptation. Many of us came from there. But our biggest struggle now is having come from there that we might have forgotten that we came from there and now we've become the, the righteous elder brother who's going to purge the world of all wickedness, not by godly living and loving people, but by some kind of strong arm, kingdom of God Gestapoism. I think it was Nietzsche of all people who said, beware when you fight the dragon that you don't become the dragon. Lord, help us. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.